Thank you, choir, for sharing that special. It's one of those that's one of those fun Southern gospel gospel songs where you got the the bass mixed with a soprano and and echoing each other. Those are always fun to listen to, and I appreciate you sharing that song with us. And uh, thank you to Noel and Miss Glenda and Miss Jeannie for leading worship today. And as we begin our time of study, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning knowing that your word is true. Lord, we know that you have spoken. Uh, you have spoken through your prophets of old as you have sp- uh, worked through the life of the people of Israel and brought them into the promised land, disciplined them in the exile, brought them back through uh, their exile into the promised land. And all the way you have given them your word. But you have spoken truly and finally through your son, Jesus Christ, and through his apostles. And it is to the witness of Christ and his apostles that we turn today and ask that you would reprove us and correct us, that you would lead us into all righteousness. Father, the the picture that you paint for us in the symbolism of baptism shows us our salvation. It pictures to us Anytime someone is baptized, what it looks like to die to our old self and to rise again. And so, Lord, I pray that regardless of where we stand in our relationship with you, that you would use this picture of baptism today as we study about it, that you would draw to mind our baptism that we experienced if we are a believer and that it would encourage us and build us up. Or if we have been putting off baptism or or refusing to be baptized, that we would see and understand it clearly and be drawn to follow you in obedience. Father, I pray that you would work through this word that we might be drawn near to you. It's in Christ name I pray. Amen. So, so far in our study of the doctrine of worship, we've worked through the, the who of worship, the why of worship, the what of worship. And then lastly, we work through the where and the when of worship in the last several weeks that we've been in, in service together. And so now we come to what I have intended to be the last question about worship, and that is how we should worship. And so we're going to spend a good bit of time, probably about six weeks, looking at all the different things that we do to worship God. And we're going to look at some very practical ways that we as believers worship God. And uh, we're going to look at some personal ways that we can worship, whether it's through studying our Bible in our own quiet time or through prayer and through all these things. We'll look at, look at some ways that we can, as a family, worship and as a congregation, we can worship. So this morning, I want to start to answer the question of how we worship by considering the first act of worship that any new believer should take. The first step in our life of worship as a new believer is the act of baptism. Baptism is our, as we as Baptists like to say, our first act of obedience in our life as a Christian. Or if we're to frame it in the in the context of our study in worship, it is our first act of worship because as we know, obedience is an act of worship. And so if we're to act in obedience to God, then we start that life of obedience through our baptism. Now our church believes, and we're consistent in this with all Baptist churches, at least as far as I know, our church believes that baptism is 
is the beginning of a Christian's life within the church. We believe that you cannot be a member of our church without first being baptized. And we also believe that you cannot receive or should not receive the Lord's Supper until you're baptized. So when I was a boy, I was baptized at the age of eight. And I really did make a a true public profession of faith. I really did believe that Jesus was my Savior. But if I'm honest with you right now, I also wanted to be able to eat that little cracker and drink that grape juice that all the adults got to eat and drink once a quarter. And then, when I finally got to do that, it came as quite a shock that that little cracker tastes like chalk and and that grape juice was tart and dry. And so when I got to have communion for the first time, my younger brother, Patrick, he got jealous. And all of a sudden, Patrick wanted to get baptized too. But I knew that Patrick just wanted to get baptized because he wanted to take communion just like his older brother did. So as my dad was talking to Patrick about being baptized and he knew it was kind of a ruse to get communion too, I said, Patrick, don't do it. It's not worth it. That stuff tastes horrible. Now, I'm concerned that many people within our churches maybe have a similar view that I did to baptism today. We treat it as though it's, it's really not all that important. It's kind of a formality that we go through. You know, it's just something we, we preachers are sticklers about. But it's really not all that big of a deal. And it's, it's strange to say that in, even in a denomination that's named after the very act of baptism, you know, a Baptist, the practice has fallen on hard times. Uh, for a considerable amount of time, for probably the last 20 years, the Southern Baptist Convention has been declining precipitously in the number of baptisms that we have year over year. In many churches, people will participate in the life of the church, and it's become a pretty regular practice for churches to allow people to serve in the church, even though they aren't members of the church or haven't uh, been baptized. And evangelists often opt for talking about walking the aisle or making the decision rather than committing to the act of baptism. But in Scripture, baptism is our first act of obedience. In fact, in Scripture, baptism is the right response to the gospel. Baptism is what we do to profess our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our first act of worship as a believer. So today, I want to cover a lot of the New Testament as we look at and seek to understand three aspects of worship uh, of baptism. I want to look at the meaning of baptism, the method of baptism, and the moment of baptism. And we're going to look at two particular passages in detail. So if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, you can hold a finger there. That'll be the first place we go together. And then we will also look at 1 Peter chapter 3. 
So Colossians chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 3. So to start, and most of what I want to cover today is the meaning of baptism. What does baptism mean to the new believer? Now there are three truths that I, want, that I believe that baptism represents. Three things that baptism means. First, baptism represents a shift in covenant relationship. So in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13, Jesus comes down to the Jordan River and he approaches John the Baptist and he says, tells John the Baptist that he wants to be baptized. And John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he actually tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized. And he tells him, Lord, you should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. And Jesus responds in verse 15 by saying, it is fitting for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, when we often use that passage to say, see, in order to, be, uh, to fulfill all righteousness, we all need to be baptized. But I think we often miss what Jesus is saying here. We need to understand just how scandalous what Jesus is doing is and how scandalous what John the Baptist was doing. Um, John the Baptist was the forerunner to the Messiah. John the Baptist was, as the, the prophets called him, the, uh, the one, a voice crying in the wilderness. He was calling people to repentance and to prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah. And the way that he called them to repent was to be baptized. Now, this was a scandalous thing to call a good Jewish people to do because baptism was not for the Jews. Baptism was something that Gentile converts had to do when they converted to Judaism. So when, if you were a Gentile, which all of us in this room were, if you wanted to become a Jew in the Old Testament, you would have to go through several steps. And the last of those steps that you would have to go through is that you would have to be baptized in order to join the Jewish community. So do you see how scandalous this is? Do you see that what John the Baptist is calling these good Jewish people to do is to say to confess that they aren't true Jews and that they, in order to be a true Jew, need to repent and be baptized again. So just for example, imagine that I came into this church house or I went on on July 4th to the city hall and I had a big crowd of people there and I started telling them, none of y'all are true citizens of the United States. And in order to be true citizens of the United States, you need to go through the whole process of becoming a citizen before you can count your citizenship to be true. Imagine if I did that. Y'all would all look at me like I had three heads. What are you talking about? I've been an American my whole life. I was born here. You can't say that I'm not an American. Well, that's effectively what what, uh, John the Baptist is saying. And what he's basing that on is Jeremiah chapter 33, uh, 31, verse 31, which says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So John knows and he is called to announce the coming of this new covenant. That the Messiah is coming and when he comes, he will bring about a new covenant where God will, through his Holy Spirit, write the law of God on the hearts of those who receive him. And they all need to get ready for this by being baptized. And so Jesus comes to John and Jesus, to announce the beginning of this new covenant, he submits to baptism. So your baptism represents a shift in your relationship to God. You were an alien and a stranger. Now you might think, well, Brother Nathan, I've been a member of this church my whole life. Or or I've grown up in this church. I was Baptist before I was even born. My mama went to church every day she was... uh, every day that she was, uh, when she was pregnant with me, you can't say that I am not a child of God because I was a child of God before I was ever born. But brothers and sisters, there is no such thing as a person who is born a Christian. There is no such thing as a person who is born a Baptist. In order to be a child of God, you must have a relationship with God that is uh, part of His covenant family. You were, when you were born, you were born an alien and a stranger to God. You were outside of the covenant, doomed to judgment and hell. But because of what God has done through Jesus Christ, you were moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's light. And that's all symbolized in the act of baptism. In baptism, we are symbolizing a movement from our being outcast outside of the covenant of God to being in covenant with God through Jesus Christ. Second, baptism represents a sign of that covenant. So baptism represents a shift Baptism represents a sign. To see that, let's read together Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through, I mean, I'm sorry, verses 11 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. In him, that's Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside nailing it to the cross. He, armed, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So Paul says that we who have trusted in Jesus Christ have been circumcised with a circumcision 
made without hands. Now what Paul is drawing on, if you remember, is the story from Genesis chapter 17, where God has already made a covenant with Abraham, and he calls Abraham in Genesis chapter uh, 17 to circumcise all of the males in the camp. And he says that this circumcision is going to be a perpetual sign to all of his descendants. And what it was meant to do is it was meant to be an outward sign of a promise that God had already made. It was meant to be a reminder to the Israelites that they were set apart by God. So Paul says that the same thing has happened to us in two ways. First of all, we have been circumcised in our hearts. That God has taken you, if you're a believer, and through His Holy Spirit, He has removed that stony heart, that heart that is set against God, that heart that is uh, willfully defiant against God, and He has replaced it with a heart that beats after God. And so if you want to know, and I tell people this all the time, the clearest, most certain way to know that you are a child of God is do you desire the things of God? Do you want to do His will? Not do you always do it, because you won't always do it, but do you desire the things of God? If you do, then that is a sign to you that you have been circumcised of your heart. The second way that we know that is through an outward sign. Now, notice that Paul in verse 12 says that this inward sign of our heart also has an outward marker as well, which is our baptism. When we get up in front of people and we go under that water back there or in a creek or in a pond or wherever you were baptized, we are making a public sign, taking on a public sign that we are now part of the covenant of God. Now, I know it's embarrassing to get up in front of a bunch of people and be dunked under the water, have your hair all messed up, ladies, and makeup runny and all that. But honestly, that's the point. In baptism, you are taking on the sign of Christ as you follow Him in something that seems foolish and unnecessary. And it's worth noting that as strange as the act of baptism is, in other countries, baptism could actually cost you your life. Muslims and Hindus in other countries, they don't have a lick of problem with you saying that you like Jesus. They don't have a lick of problem with you saying that you invited Jesus into your heart. But the moment you get baptized is the moment that you draw their attention. And that's interesting because they recognize that that act of baptism is a sign that marks you out. And so it's not until our brothers and sisters over in in parts of the Middle East and over in uh, Asia, it's not until that they get baptized that they draw the attention of unbelievers in their area. And third, baptism represents our salvation. To see that, flip over with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits imprisoned, because they formerly did not obey when, Christ, when God's patience wait, waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter reminds us of this judgment that God brought on the world through the flood. And he reminds us of the story of Noah and how Noah trusted God and he built an ark. And and through that ark, Noah and his family were delivered from the floodwaters. And he wants us to remember that God found favor with Noah and Noah trusted God, even though his commands were strange and, and likely brought him ridicule. And then when the floodwaters came, Noah and his family, because of their faith in the promises of God, passed through the waters of judgment to a new life. And Peter says, in a similar way, baptism symbolizes our passing through judgment to a new life in Jesus. So Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4, that we were buried with Christ in baptism and raised to new life. So baptism symbolizes the fact that we have died to our old life and been raised again to new life in Jesus Christ through the power of His Holy Spirit. When we see someone baptized, we are witnessing in a public display the death of an old man and the resurrection of a new man. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. So, now that we've understood the meaning of baptism, let's consider real quickly the method and the moment of baptism. Now, I think it's obvious as far as the method is concerned, I think it's obvious if we understand the meaning of baptism correctly, that it's supposed to be an act of immersion in water. Paul refers to baptism both in Colossians chapter 2 and in Romans chapter 6 as a symbol of death and resurrection in Christ. Now, it's hard to symbolize death and burial in any other way than to get immersed into water. Sprinkling doesn't symbolize that. Pouring doesn't symbolize that. Immersion does symbolize burial and resurrection in the picture of baptism. Second, most of the baptisms that we find in the New Testament seem to indicate, first of all, that there was a lot of water that was required, and second, that the participants went down into the water and came back out. And then lastly, because baptism is linked to the Jewish practice of ceremonial washing, it makes sense that the practice would have been one of immersion. So finally, we need to understand 
the moment of baptism. When should someone be baptized? Now, as you probably already know, and some of you probably have friends that, or you may have grown up in this, these types of denominations, most denominations practice in some form or another, some form of infant baptism. But Baptists reserve the right of baptism just for those who have made a profession of faith. Now, again, I think the reasons for this are clear if we understand the meaning of baptism. First of all, an infant or anybody else who has not trusted in Jesus Christ is outside of the new covenant of Christ because they have not placed their faith in Christ. So they can't rightly symbolize that shift from the old covenant to the new if they haven't placed their faith in Jesus. And therefore, we shouldn't baptize infants or those who haven't trusted in Jesus Christ. Second, because they haven't been converted and given a new heart through the Holy Spirit, baptism doesn't serve as an outward sign of inward change. So it doesn't make much sense in that respect either. It can't be the the sign that it was meant to be if the person hasn't actually had a change of heart. And lastly, the symbolism of salvation that's seen in baptism uh, is lost on the person who has never trusted in Jesus Christ. It would be strange to baptize someone who hasn't actually been changed in their heart and brought through the waters of death into life. It would be odd to picture that when they actually haven't experienced it themselves. So in closing, I want to address the biggest question that I know we Baptists get about baptism. And that is, does baptism save you? Does baptism actually save you? Does it do anything for you or is it just a symbol? I want to propose that we as Baptists, we have... Uh, haven't done too great of a job at answering this question. In a reaction against denominations who say that baptism actually does save you, we have tended to run to the opposite end of the spectrum and say, no, no, it has nothing to do with your salvation. You really don't have to worry about it at all. And uh, we've done that to avoid any possible connection with that idea. So I want to give you a very succinct answer and answer this question as best and as clearly as I can. So here is a a one-sentence statement that I believe defines what salvation is. Salvation is a work of God by which He changes the heart of a sinner so that that sinner trusts in Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord, repents of his sin, and now desires to follow Christ as a disciple. I'll say that again for you in case you're writing it down. Salvation is a work of God by which He changes the heart of a sinner so that the sinner trusts in Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord, repents of his sin, and now desires to follow Christ as a disciple. So understand, first of all, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. Amen. There is nothing you can do to add to your salvation. There is nothing you can do to take away from your salvation. 
God loves you as much now as He ever has loved you. He has set His heart upon you. And because of what He has done, you are saved. Amen. But, <laughs> but, salvation results in a change of heart. A change of heart that means that you are now set upon God. And your, your heart is now set upon God so that you desire to do the things that God calls you to do. So, if like the thief on the cross, a person trusts in Christ but never has the opportunity to be baptized, that person is saved because he or she has trusted in Christ. If you're, you make a foxhole profession of faith, you're on the battlefield and you trust in Jesus and a bomb comes and you die, you are saved because you have trusted in Jesus Christ. If you have been a member of this church for 50 years and you were baptized at the year uh, at eight years old, you were saved not because you were baptized at eight years old, but because you trusted in Jesus Christ. But, and it's a big but, <laughs> if a person claims to trust in Christ but refuses to be baptized, it is likely the case that he or she has not been changed by God's Spirit and is not saved. Now, I, what I mean by that, and hear me clearly, if you refuse with white-knuckle grip to be baptized because you're embarrassed or because you're ashamed or because you're afraid or for whatever reason, then Christ has not changed your heart and you need to repent and follow Him in baptism. Amen. Because when Christ changes your heart, you won't care what people think about you. Amen. You won't care that the gel gets washed out of your hair and people think you're funny looking when you come out of the water. You will follow Him because you love Him more than you love the opinion of men. Amen. So friend, if you're putting off baptism because it's too embarrassing or because you don't know what people will think, then you have your answer as to whether you're saved. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. If you are unwilling to do the same thing that Jesus did and be baptized, then repent. Today can be the day that you commit wholeheartedly to the Lord. Turn to Him in faith and follow Him in the waters of baptism. Brothers and sisters, our baptism is a sign of our inclusion in Christ. If we have trusted in Jesus Christ, then our baptism represents that new covenant that He has made with us. We have been marked out by our baptism. So when you face doubts uh, about your relationship with the Lord, when you doubt whether you're saved because of sin that you've fallen into, remember your baptism. Your baptism should remind you of the fact that you have been marked out, that God has made a covenant with you, and that nothing can change that because He has set His heart upon you. 
Remember that God has made a covenant with you. He has given you a sign through the change in your heart and through the baptism that you went through. And He has brought you from death to life. Just like you were brought through those baptismal waters. Trust in Christ and remember your baptism and give thanks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God that reminds us of the meaning of our baptism and the sign of it and the, and the way that we were brought through the, the waters of baptism just like we were brought from death to life. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who has not followed you in baptism, that they would be convicted and that they would be drawn to follow you and be obedient to you in this first act of worship before your people. Father, bless us as we respond in faith to you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.